Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And December 7th is Pearl Harbor Day, the day that, as President Franklin Roosevelt stated in his speech to Congress, his request for a declaration of war against Japan and Germany said would be the day that would live in infamy. In order to commemorate Pearl Harbor Day, uh, I am so pleased that we can have with us on the show today author Stephen Moore and a member of the crew of the Sailfish, the submarine that this book is about, a submarine and its crew member, William Dillon, Bill Dillon, who is with us. Bill Dillon is the last surviving member of the crew of the submarine, the Sailfish. He's 99 years old, and we salute you, Bill Dillon. Thank you so very much for being with us, and thank you, Stephen Moore, author of Strike of the Sailfish, Two Sister Submarines, and the Sinking of a Japanese Aircraft Carrier. Stephen Moore has written some, I believe, 20 books, is the author of two dozen books, over uh, 20 books, two dozen books on World War II, Vietnam, and Texas history. Strike of the Sailfish, Two Sister Submarines, and the Sinking of a Japanese Aircraft Carrier. Let's start, if I might, by asking you, Steve Moore, author of Strike of the Sailfish. We're going to hear from you and from Bill Dillon, the last surviving member of the Sailfish, about three submarines, except that really they're just two. Could you sort that out for us at the beginning of our conversation, please? Yeah, so we're going back to pre-World War II, late 1930s, 1938, uh, 1939. Two sister submarines are launched and commissioned within months of each other, the USS Squalus and the USS Sculpin. Uh, the same type of boat, same characteristics, uh, eight torpedo tubes. But a tragedy ensues during a test dive in 1939 off the coast of New Hampshire. The Squalus sinks, uh, drowning about half the crew. And her sister submarine, Sculpin, happens to come out and find the rescue buoy and help direct the rescue vessels that will affect a 39-hour rescue operation to bring 33 men back to the surface to survive this sinking. And to tell it quickly, the Navy later uh, resurfaces the Squalus, and the first attempt is, is failed, and she looks like a sailfish broaching the surface as she comes up and shakes off her tethers and sinks to the ocean floor again. But they bring her back to port eventually, raise her, uh, rebuild her, recommission her as the USS Sailfish. And so fast forward four years into the war, Sculpin and Sailfish have made numerous war patrols, and these two crews know each other pretty well during R and R time and during uh, construction time back in port, so they're they're you know pretty associated with each other, so pretty intimate. The former Squalus, now the Sailfish, and the Sculpin. Okay, take a minute and tell us what happens to the Sculpin because we're going to spend most of our time today talking about the Sailfish and with Bill Dillon, the last surviving member, 99 years old now, member of the crew. Tell us what happens to the first submarine. So they're both uh, coming back from refits, and this is late 1943. And in early November 1943, Sculpin goes back on patrol first, ahead of the sailfish by a couple of weeks. 
and they get out into the Pacific, uh, into the uh, operational area, and pick up a convoy and proceed to want to attack. Everything goes awry, but to sum it up quickly, they're forced to dive and endure several depth charge attacks in which Sculpin is badly damaged by the depth charges to the point where they're afraid if they dive again, they will not be able to save the boat. So with leaks and malfunctions and all kinds of things going on, the skipper makes the decision against the will of some of the crew to battle surface against a Japanese destroyer. So you're talking a submarine with a little pea shooter of a deck gun and some machine guns. These valiant men taking on a heavily armed Japanese destroyer and it's not a fair fight from the start. Within just a couple of minutes, large caliber 50, you know, five inch shells slam into Sculpin's conning tower, killing the captain and most of the senior officers, leaving the senior surviving officer to make the decision to dive the boat, open the hatches and scuttle the boat to prevent the Japanese from taking it uh, and capturing anything. Among a few who decide not to escape is the Wolfpack commander, John Cromwell, He's been briefed on secret allied operations, and he fears if he's captured and tortured, he'll give up allied secrets. So he goes down with the Sculpin and later is given a posthumous medal of honor for choosing to do so. The surviving crew takes to the water, they're machine gunned, and eventually once their boat goes under, once Sculpin is gone, the destroyer decides to start picking up some of the crew. They rescue 42 of the Sculpin men, some of them badly wounded, shot, hit by shrapnel, uh, one so bad that they toss him back into the ocean to drown, but the remaining 41 are taken to truck for interrogation and 10 days of torture before the next part of the book ensues. Steve Moore, author of Strike of the Sailfish, Two Sister Submarines and the Sinking of a Japanese Aircraft Carrier. I, I want to share with our listeners what I told you just before we went on air, and that is your descriptions of these battles your description of the Japanese prisoner of war camps. It, the, the, what's in this book is just gripping and, and it made me, it gave me chills, really. It just so, 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 so well written, so well, the story so well wrought. I'd like to turn, if I might, to Bill Dillon. Let me tell you about the cover of this book, the, under the subtitle, Two Sister Submarines and the Sinking of a Japanese Aircraft Carrier, is this quote, I served aboard the sailfish during World War II, and I'm the last survivor, and this is the real story. William Dillon, Bill Dillon, I would really appreciate it if you would tell us about the subtitle, Two Sister Submarines and the Sinking of a Japanese Aircraft Carrier. You were, I think, 17 years old, as I recall the story, when you joined the Navy. You were a very young man. Tell us about serving on the sailfish and the sinking of the Japanese aircraft carrier. One thing that I can really tell you about that, we were being asked to do something that we had never done before ever, and we were untrained to do so. And that was to fire at a target uh, during a raging typhoon, not knowing where the target was, what kind of a target it was, or anything at all. And every, every job that was being performed uh, had different circumstances in which they performed. That is, depending on where you were in the boat. If you were in the forward torpedo room, torpedo room, you had one job. If you were in the after torpedo room, you had another job. If you were in the maneuver room, you had another job. So, in other words, it 
during the attack uh, that we were taking, uh, doing, uh, there were two guys really on board that vessel that were, were very, very well had knowledge of the uh, various radars we had aboard. And we didn't have those radars until we put them on in Mare Island when we came in uh, to, to be repaired. And that was uh, uh, Frank Dietrich and myself, which we were ultimately trained on how to use radar. So this was the very, very first time that we were trying to uh, attack an enemy vessel here by using radar. In other words, the uh, the raging typhoon that was going on, you couldn't go out on, you couldn't go up in the conning tower and have the uh, the various officers uh, viewing uh, either through a periscope through the conning tower or from the deck uh, on the ship that we're trying to sink. We never saw the ship, and so the. The, uh, the hatches were open, water's flowing down into, into the conning tower, uh, everybody's getting drained, the boat, the boat was uh, shaking up and down, moving right and left, and it was like uh, when you try to shoot a, a gun and, uh, and the barrel's going every which, which direction, that's exactly what was happening to the submarine. So well, let, what let, we did... Yeah, please go on. Go ahead. And then so uh, between Frank Dietrich and I, what, what, do, what we were doing... We were the sole source of the information to go into the TDC, which is a target data computer, and which we were uh, uh, using the radar to look at the different blips that's on the radar. We had no idea what they were. And so what we did, we, we finally picked that the, the largest blip, and we tried to home in on that, that particular one and provide the information on the attitude and the distance that that uh, particular blip was so they could crank it into the uh, TDC and then from the TDC to p send that information into the, uh, the various torpedoes that we intend to fire. It's Eventually, we actually fired 11 torpedoes at it. Uh, we didn't hit them all, but we eventually hit 11. It, we fired 11. It is striking to me, Bill Dillon, how you recite the story, which happened, I think, in 1944, as if it were yesterday. Are the images, are the memories that vivid for you? Uh, repeat that, Bill, please. Sure. I'd like to know, upon your reflections of serving on the sailfish in World War II, not only this attack on the Japanese uh, uh, carrier, but in general, when are these memories of serving on the sailfish vivid for you all these years later? Oh, it, it's yesterday. Uh, uh, to be actually uh, perfectly frank with you, uh, I'm on the boat right now, and as I'm talking to you, believe it or not, I'm actually going through all the motions that I did uh, back in that time. And my memory right now is so doggone vivid. Uh, I have nightmares, and uh, I have P PTSD. Uh, I, uh, I think a lot, and it, uh, it's, 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 it was yesterday. It was just yesterday. Well, how scary was it to be on this submarine? And leading me to my, the question I'd also ask, like you to answer, which is, why did you volunteer for submarine duty? Actually, you know, in all seriousness, uh, I, there were just a few guys that got scared. But you didn't really get scared for some reason or other. Uh, the, uh, you, were, you were really so trained with respect to uh, the discipline and whatever. And, of course, uh, every time we came back in, we had to go see a psychiatrist before we could go back on the boat and, make sure we were ready to go again. But uh, I, I don't know. I just, what I felt was this. I was 
I was going in the Navy in one piece, and I'm going to come back in one piece. <laughs> and they tried to move me around to different places, and I said, absolutely not. I want to go aboard a submarine. It was the best thing that I ever did in my entire life. Was it claustrophobic? Because reading the book made me feel like I was in that submarine with you, and I felt claustrophobic and scared. I, I, how do you get over that? Absolutely not, and I'll tell you why. I'm a de de depression kid. I learned an awful lot during the depression, and the, the depression taught us discipline. And the, uh, uh, anything that we did, we did the best we possibly could. And when we were assigned a boat, and uh, when we were given the job to do, we just followed through and did what we were supposed to do, and we believed in the skipper. We thought that no matter what happened, he was going to get us in and he was going to get us out. And by gosh, he did. Buzz? Uh, Bill Dillon, uh, this is Buzz. And did, my question is this. It was about eight decades ago that the strike of the sailfish occurred. How much of an impact did that have in shaping the rest of your life? It, it truly shaped my entire life. That the... Uh, when I went into service uh, as a 17-year-old, uh, uh, non-graduate, didn't even get my, G, my uh, high school diploma, and uh, it wasn't until six years later that uh, when I was married, I had a couple of kids and went back to high school and then got my engineering degree from the University of Florida and then eventually got my master's degree. I would be interested to know, Bill Dillon, what was it like to be in that submarine down some 300 feet near the maximum possible depth for this particular submarine and to have depth charges exploding around you. Is that part of the memories that you carry with you? Absolutely. And uh, in fact, after the war, uh, a submariner is always a submariner. And we were as close as family. You, you couldn't get any closer, okay? And after the war, uh, when we got together, uh, I talked to the guy, said, hey, do you remember me? He says, oh, certainly, Bill, I remember you. You were the only guy in the boat that was never scared, and I never was. Now, I would say this, that I did pray to the Lord, you get me out of here, and I ain't coming back again. But then when we went back in, had a couple of good weeks of uh, recreation, I went right back out again. One of the memories I carry with me as it, from being a very young person, was watching a movie and then the television series and reading the book, Run Silent, Run Deep. And when I read these passages in Steve Moore's book, Strike of the Sailfish, and had this description of your ship, your submarine, the sailfish, running silent and running deep, it made me feel terrified. <laughs> I wonder what it was like to be running silent what, and what that means and how it felt. When it tells you to do that, you do it. In other words, you don't use any, you know, a submarine is a, uh, a sort of a floating milk bottle. And uh, the only way you move a submarine around is moving water, okay? So in order to run silent, you cannot move water at all. And if you want to stabilize the vessel, which we had to do on several occasions, we move people. We move, okay, three guys forward, 12 guys aft, nine, nine guys center deck. In other words, we move people around. And then when we were being depth charged, 
and then we got all kind of leaks in the boat and they were filling the bilges with water we could not turn the pumps on we got we got buckets of water and we moved buckets back and forth and dumping water in the forward room or, the or in the aft room just to stabilize the vessel and doing it with people. So that's run solidly. You couldn't do anything. And that's because if you turned on the engines, the Japanese destroyers and submarine hunters on the surface would be able to hear where you were and locate their depth charges to take out the sailfish. Is that right? Exactly. And not only, not only that. When you're on the sonar, you can't ping. In other words, if you want to find out how far away, when you're submerged, if you want to find out how far that ship is away, you would normally ping. We couldn't ping because as soon as we did, we would be discovered. So what we do, you can only do it by experience. And that is either, as you listen to the various ships out there, you can, and the, on the, uh, the amount of sound that you're getting, give you some kind of a determination about how far that's, how far that ship is away from you. In other words, the more distance, really, I mean, the less sound, the further distance away. You get closer to you, and that experience cannot just be learned. You, go, you actually had to go through it first. We are speaking with Bill Dillon. He is the last surviving member of the Sailfish, the submarine that served in World War II, and with Steve Moore, who is the author of Strike of the Sailfish, Two Sister Submarines and the Sinking of a Japanese Aircraft Carrier. So much more we want to ask. We'll continue this conversation right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. 20 years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone. Two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build the solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Forbes Library is Northampton's public library with an amazing circulating collection of over 325,000 items, including bestsellers, recent releases, tons of movies, large print books, e-books, audiobooks, and an extensive collection for kids and teens featuring board books, picture books, chapter books, and graphic novels. The library even has musical instruments that you can borrow. You can search the library's catalog online at ForbesLibrary.org, and while you're there, you can request a card and place items on hold. The library's website is also a great place to find out about upcoming programs and events which are always free and open to the public. We have story times, book clubs for kids, teens, and adults, poetry discussions, film discussions, author talks, concerts, movies for grown-ups, and so much more. Visit ForbesLibrary.org for more information and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep up with all the latest happenings. It's your library. Make the most of it.
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. On this, our commemoration of Pearl Harbor Day, we are speaking with Steve Moore, author of Strike of the Sailfish, Two Sister Submarines and the Sinking of a Japanese Aircraft Carrier, and Bill Dillon, a member of the crew, the last surviving member of the crew who is now 99 years old, who served on that submarine through a number of tours under the sea during World War II. I'd like to go back to you, Steve Moore, and ask you about something that I learned that it never occurred to me. It certainly doesn't show up in the official films of World War II and the Navy's films, which is a lot of the equipment for the time that the sailfish was on patrol didn't work. The torpedoes didn't work. People risking their lives on equipment that ultimately couldn't do the job. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, you're right. In fact, I've interviewed years ago uh, more submariners that served in, uh, right after the war started through 1942, and America had faulty torpedoes. We had problems with them. They would be fired and literally hit a Japanese ship, and they would fail to explode because of detonators, angles, and various things. The Germans had the same problem. They were quicker to figure out their errors and correct them uh, and get the U-boats to become quite deadly early in the war. It was not into 1943, you know, the middle of the year that we really undertook, you know, Vice Admiral Lockwood made it a project to find out what's going on with these faulty torpedoes. And they did a lot of testing, test drops, firing at targets that were still and figured out some of the mistakes, uh, the problems they had mechanically and corrected them. So by the time Sailfish is heading out on patrol in late November of 1943, they have much better torpedoes to work with. I'd like to take one brief detour. One of the aspects of your book, that one, one of the, well, actually there are a number of pieces in the book where you describe Japanese prisoner of war camps. It, those descriptions are chilling. How did you get that information? Uh, previous research on some other books, I interviewed a number of submarine veterans who were held as POWs in the camps, uh, including some of the Sculpin men. And, and their stories are heart-wrenching, they're tough, um, and some of the guys had a tough time telling the story. You know, they would break down. It, it was traumatic to relive that. Uh, but to me, one of the most amazing men was George Rochek, who was a motor machinist mate on the Sculpin. He actually survived two sinkings in about a two-week period. The loss of the Sculpin, he's hit by shrapnel, he's wounded, picked up by a Japanese destroyer, and he and 40 of his comrades from the Sculpin are taken to truck where they're interrogated, truck, beaten, tell our, tell, our, tell our listeners, I don't mean to interrupt, what's truck? Truck Atoll is an island group in the Pacific. It's the equivalent of America's Pearl Harbor. It was a key staging base for the Japanese fleet, a good central point for operations, and it became a big target for us in 1944 for some of our attacks. But in late 1943, we hadn't done much with trucks, so it was pretty much untouched. And these guys from the Sculpin are brought there. And as we already discussed, Bill's submarine sailfish eventually makes this long attack and sinks the carrier Chuyo. There are two groups of Sculpin POWs on two different carriers in this fleet that Bill's submarine is attacking. As fate would have it, 21 of them are on the Chuyo, which is ultimately sunk by the sailfish. Only one man, George Roshek, was fortunate enough to survive and be picked up by a Japanese destroyer. There were not many survivors, Japanese, 
uh, included only one American, George Rochek. And Bill, of course, and his crew and his skipper had no knowledge there were American POWs on these carriers they were attacking. Their job was to sink a capital warship, and they did their job. Uh, it was not until after the war that Bill was able to meet George and, and find out about that. And, and I'm sure that was kind of tough and, and heartwarming at the same time, Bill, to make that connection, wasn't it? So, Bill Dillon, please tell us about that. Uh, I'm telling you, it's un- abs- how this book got written is absolutely, totally unbelievable. And when we landed in London and Steve came over and we didn't know each other at all during the entire flight, and he got to see my jacket that I got on. And uh, he walked up to me and he said, uh, do you know George Rojack? Holy cow, you could have knocked me over with a feather because of all the people on this planet who to have two guys on an airplane who don't know each other whatsoever. And he asked me, do I know George Rojack? Well, certainly I knew George Rojack. And anyway, there's a long story that goes with that and anything else. But I blame the writing of this book on my daughter, Linda Muslin. <laughs> Whenever we just shook hands, and by the way, she's with me now, but what she did when we shook hands, we just said goodbye and everything else. Linda recognized the significance of that question and that answer. And she read after him and, that, and then established a, a communications between him and us. And that's where we got started. Absolutely unbelievable. What's your favorite memory of serving on the sailfish? I think, oh my goodness, I got so many, uh, really, really so many. It would take me all week to tell you all, all about it because the, uh, when we had, well, I don't know if you're aware, but we got double pay too, by the way. And we got double pay plus 10%, okay? And uh, believe it or not, the paymaster even gave us our paycheck when we we're out of sea. Made it a little hard to cash that check. And, and, and not, well, what happened is the, the gambling began, and whoever had the most money at the end of the patrol is the guy that paid for all the drinks for all the guys on board. So it was, so I have so many memories that I, I, there's not one. I just say it was, this was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. You can feel free to not answer this question. If you, the next one, which is, is there one memory that is like the worst of the dangers that you faced? Yes, the sinking off of Pearl, or the bad, the bad boat dive. The bad dive, oh, maybe. Oh, yes. Do I see how she is? She's very good. Remind me something. We, we almost sunk the boat twice, twice, Okay. And I'll tell you how that happened. You got to remember that the squalus was sunk, you know, and raised, okay? And so on two occasions, uh, we almost sunk the boat. We came out of Pearl Harbor, and one of the first things you do, you're supposed to trim the boat. But you do the trim the boat after the uh, diving officer has made all the computations about where he put all the torpedoes, where the water's going, where the fuel's going, how much, and blah, 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 blah. He failed to do that. And what happened was on our very first dive out of Pearl Harbor, we went down like a rock. And normally you would dive at two to five degrees. And we got down below past 20 degrees. 
and all we were doing was holding on to the bowels. We were trying to open and close bowels, but the, our feet were falling out from underneath it. But eventually, it got turned around. The emergency came out of the water, like that picture that Steve showed you earlier. When we came out of the water, we came out of the water straight up. And when it was slammed down, we thought the boat was going to break in half. And uh, luckily, it did not. But uh, we survived that one. Yes. <laughs> thank you, Dad. <laughs> thank you, Linda, <laughs> for And thank you both. Uh, let me go back. Actually, I want to continue this conversation on the other side. And I want to preface it with this. This is from the epilogue of Steve Moore's book, Strike of the Sailfish. 77 years after the decommissioning, only one sailfish veteran remains who was present in both that 1945 ceremony, the decommissioning of the sailfish, and on the boat's final five war patrols. The boat's final five war patrols. Bill Skip Dillon. Nearing his 98th birthday, he's now 99, Dillon still sports a hearty smile on a tanned face that looks decades younger than his true age. He is full of energy, eager to recount his service accomplishments and how a Depression-era high school dropout went on to achieve so much. He is a shining example of the men, author Tom Brokaw, rightfully dubbed the greatest generation. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A spending bill that includes money for temporary shelter spaces for migrant homeless families has cleared the Massachusetts legislature after more than 100 Democratic lawmakers arrived at the State House to overcome efforts by House Republicans to block the bill. The $2.8 billion spending bill passed yesterday sets aside $250 million to provide shelter for vulnerable families, including $50 million for an overflow site for homeless families stuck on a state wait list. The city of Northampton paid $75,000 to an Amherst man to settle an excessive force case instead of going to trial. This, according to the shoestring, who reported that Jenison Retzlaff was beaten and pepper sprayed by officers arriving on the scene after a neighbor had called for a wellness check on him. The incident happened in 2019, and the settlement was reached in September. Meanwhile, the trial of Eric Matlock, who was beaten, pepper sprayed, and arrested by Northampton police officers on the steps of City Hall in 2017, will proceed to trial. Gateway City Arts, the music venue and restaurant in a redeveloped industrial building in Holyoke, is now for sale. After closing during the pandemic and reopening, the owners, Vitek Kruta and Lori Devine, have decided to pass their passion project on to new owners. The asking price is $4.5 million for the 28,000-square-foot venue. They stress that they are not closing and have events scheduled through the end of the year and hope the new owners will continue to use the space as an arts venue. A bit of sun and clouds this morning, and that's going to be the trend all week, but cooler temperatures are on the horizon. High temperatures today in the high 30s and low 40s. As we head into the overnight, those temperatures dip down into the 20s, mainly the mid to high 20s for our low temperatures, and conditions are going to stay similar in the overnight, some partial cloud cover. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts.
Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. Rachel Maddow's new book is Prequel, The American Fight Against Fascism. Get it now at Broadside Bookshop. Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, is new from Heather Cox Richardson. And The Vaster Wilds is a new novel from Lauren Groff, a story of faith and survival set in the wilderness of early New England. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store. Then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with Steve Moore, author of Strike of the Sailfish, Two Sister Submarines and the Sinking of a Japanese Aircraft Carrier. Today is the publication date of that book. Also with us, Bill Dillon, the last surviving member of the crew of the Sailfish, now 99 years old. Buzz, you had a question for Steve Moore. Steve Moore, you have uh, written a number of books. You're an historian on Texas and on World War II. I'm wondering what it was like, and did it change you to actually meet one of these historical figures that generally you write about in Bill Dillon? Uh, what was that, how meaningful was it for you to actually get his story right from his mouth? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it touches you. Um, years back, I got a chance to interview the Sculpin guys that survived the POW camps. That was tough. That was tough listening to their stories. For me, meeting Bill was an honor. It was exciting. And he enthusiastically shared his stories and continues to think of things, you know, that we put in the book, things we could have put in the book. But he's so full of energy and so full of life that it, it touches me to see somebody this enthusiastic. You know, he's, he's approaching his 100th year uh, birthday that he's going to celebrate next year. And we hope to honor him on Pearl Harbor Day at the National Museum of the Pacific War. But uh, it's been an honor, and I consider him a friend at this point. We we chat and text regularly, and, and it's been a pleasure. Bill Dillon, as we commemorate this Pearl Harbor Day, what would you like the country to know about the war and about the men and women who fought in it? Well, I want to tell you this, that the World War II, the submarines were the very first ones after the, when the war started to be out there. The submarines are going to be the future of this country, and the surface craft are going to be almost obsolete. So the, what they, the people ought to be thinking about is taking care of our future, our future generations, and get behind the, the, the people that are trying to build the best submarines going. During World War II, any surface craft could outrun a, a submarine. Today, no surface craft can outrun a submarine. 
So you, the big thing in the world is the future is on submarines. That's going to be the number one, number one defense of this country and offense also. That's what I think. Would you care to say something about the crew members on either the uh, Sculpin uh, or the Squalus or the Sailfish who didn't return? Some final thoughts in their memory? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Bill has uh, a lot of thoughts of, of the guys that didn't make it back. Uh, th there were some that didn't survive the 1939 sinking. There was the lost men on the Sculpin, and then Bill obviously knew other men that went out on other boats that did not return. America lost 52 submarines during the war and a lot of good men. And Bill knew some of those people, I'm sure. Absolutely. Bill Dillon, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your sharing your story. And thank you, Steve Moore, for your book, uh, really a gripping tale, the title of which is Strike of the Sailfish, Two Sister Submarines, and the Sinking of a Japanese Aircraft Carrier. The publication date is today. The book is available at your local independent bookstore. Thank you both so very much. Bill Dillon, we salute you. It's been a pleasure. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Every day, financial ads claiming to be different from the competition. Are they? I'm Frances Rayum, the money doctor, and I'm about to make a bold statement. I believe the thing to focus on isn't their uniqueness, it's yours. No one has the same financial situation or needs as you, and no one can help us help you better than you. But the truth is, when it comes to managing money, most of us are not as successful as we'd like to be. No matter how focused we are, it's almost impossible to separate emotion, and being in a relationship can further compound the issue. That's why I developed Hug Your Money. Financial coaching, coupled with online software and tools to empower you to manage money wisely. We guide you every step of the way to resolve immediate issues and plan for your financial future with modeling scenarios. So whether it's debt, budget, retirement planning, or a financial crisis, having a Hug Coach in your corner is like having a new best financial friend. Hug Your Money is as unique as you are. In fact, it's patented. Visit HugYourMoney.com. Rush Doctors, short appointments. Is anyone listening? I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson, and I'm excited to announce that Atkinson Family Practice is now offering concierge medicine in addition to our main practice. An annual fee gets you access to an experienced, board-certified doctor who has fewer patients so they can devote more time to you. Atkinson Concierge Medicine. If your health concerns need more time, coordination, and advocacy, concierge might be right for you. Visit atkinsonfamilypractice.com concierge. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping, too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome you to the SciTech Cafe with Kristen Nordstrom, the professor of physics from Mount Holyoke College. We thank you so much for being here, and we thank you for bringing on a very special guest, 
The pleasure of the introduction is yours, Professor. All right. Thank you, Bill. Um, so this month for SciTech Cafe, we're bringing in Professor Margaret Stratton, uh, who's at UMass Amherst, a uh, professor of biochemistry and molecular biology. And she's going to be telling us about what molecules are in a memory. Uh, and this was very fascinating to me. I had never heard about this concept at all. Uh, so, Margaret, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're going to talk about tomorrow? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, so my lab thinks about this a lot. And basically the conundrum is that the components within your cells are constantly being recycled and made fresh. Yet we know that memories persist for decades, right? You can remember things from maybe, you know, Christmas when you were three. Um, so how do memories persist beyond the lifetime of the molecules that make those memories? And this is, this is what we think about in my lab. We, we approach this from a biochemical perspective where we think about these molecules that are in your brain and how they can potentially send messages to the next generation of molecules to persist this memory over time. Wow, so, um, so how long do these molecules last on average? Is it like days? Yeah, weeks, on average, months? right, right. So on average, proteins, which is typically what we're thinking about here, um, can be degraded on the on the time scale of minutes to hours. Some last for days, and certain types of proteins can last for weeks, um, but rarely they last beyond months. I have a question about that. First, we should note we are speaking with the guest of or the lecturer the talk this i'm not sure what is presenter how we go there we go <laughs> speaker yeah that's great for the SciTech cafe which it will be when and where please that's gonna be tomorrow that's wednesday december 6th uh, at abandoned building brewery in east hampton massachusetts doors will be at 6 p.m and professor stratton will start talking around 6 30 p.m it's and free so please come on, come on down. And open to the public? Open to the public, free. Uh, there's beer for purchase, all ages. Uh, we do provide some light snacks. Abandoned building does allow you to bring food into the venue. So if you want to bring some takeout dinner, we welcome that. You were just hearing from Kirsten Nordstrom, who is the Claire Booth Luce Professor of Physics at Mount Holyoke College in the Department of Physics. Let's continue the conversation with Margaret Stratton. Yeah, so... Uh, when you sent me some papers on this, this is, uh, I usually feel kind of comfy reading scientific papers, but biology that, papers. That's the word, that's the word yeah. I would have used for reading scientific papers. <laughs> biology <laughs> papers, uh, especially molecular biology, they sometimes throw me for a loop because you have all the, you have a lot of terminology, jargon. Uh, so yes, I think yes. one piece of it that's relatively simple is this concept of a synaptic protein. What does that mean? Right. So the, your brain is comprised of all kinds of different cells, one type of cell being a neuron, which I think most people have heard of. And the simplest way we can think about a memory is that two neurons speak to each other. And the strength of that connection determines how strong that memory is and, and typically how long it will persist. Um, and so the proteins that are within that synapse, we term synaptic proteins. Okay. And how do you study these things, actually? <laughs> yeah. What, what do you look at? What do you look do you, at do you in your dissect lab? Dissect people's brains? Like, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. If anyone wants to make a donation to my lab, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I'm just kidding. We are, <laughs> um, we're not in that business quite yet, but we're protein biochemists. So typically what that means is that we learn about which proteins are prevalent at these synapses from other labs who maybe take samples from say mouse brain um, and figure out which proteins are, are heavily found at these synaptic connections. And then what we do in my lab is, is we take one protein at a time and we can overexpress that protein um, in another organism. We use E. coli or bacteria to express What, what does it mean to overexpress a protein? Yeah, so we, um, we tell the E. coli, hey, make a bunch of this protein so that we can mm. get it out of those like cells too much. and then use it. That's right, mm -hmm. that's right. We say make as much as you can, essentially. Is, um, is and it, then we extract I, that protein uh, and study it. Okay, for for those of us who are liberal arts majors, <laughs> what does it mean to study the protein? What what are you looking at? Yeah, we look at all kinds of stuff. So the protein I'll tell you about, which is my favorite protein and hopefully yours by the end of this segment, <laughs> is called calcium calmodulin dependent protein kinase two which we can abbreviate to CAMK2. And this protein is found at really high levels at the synapse, at the site where this memory is being formed. And the protein itself, um, we, when we you know, tell the E. coli to make a bunch of this protein, we take out the protein, then we can um, first of all study what it looks like. So we can use techniques that hit it with x-rays and use the diffraction of those x-rays to actually calculate what the protein looks like. We can also take pictures of it using a big microscope called an electron microscope. Um, and we know what this thing looks like now. It basically looks like a little flower um, where the center is this, this well-formed structure um, that has you know six or seven petals coming off of it. And the petals that stem out from the flower are the domains that actually do the work um, or catalyze reactions. So, Professor uh, Margaret Stratton, this is Buzz. I, I, my question is this, is this likely to lead um, this work that you're doing to lead to some improvement for those people who suffer from uh, memory loss due to dementia or amnesia or other things? Is, is this recycling of uh, memories into new uh, molecules uh, going to help us one day? Uh, I sure hope so. This is why I'm doing it. No. <laughs> um, so I get that question a lot, you know, where can I get some of this protein to help my memory? Um, and the answer is, I don't know. CAMK2 is implicated in Alzheimer's disease. Um, but, you know, I think the, the issue is that we really don't understand how memories are formed and maintained. And so my goal is really to understand that process at a very deep level so that we can start to understand when things go wrong, such as in Alzheimer's disease or other types of dementia or traumatic brain injuries, um, how can we potentially fix that problem or reverse it? Does, does that pedal structure have something to do with the like retention of memory? Is that important? Yes. So my pet hypothesis is that um, this, this protein, which looks like a flower, it assembles as a flower where each, each petal essentially is one 
um, discrete unit, and then they assemble together to form this flower, right? But the units can actually um, shift around between CAMK2 molecules. So if you picture one CAMK2 molecule as a flower, and then you can picture another flower next to it, these, these things can actually exchange petals with one another to share their information. So one idea, one hypothesis is that, um, you know, the neuron is stimulated, one neuron tells the next neuron, hey, let's, let's talk and let's form a strong connection. And the CAMK2 or the protein that's present there um, gets that message. And then over time, before all of that protein is, is degraded and made fresh, the protein that got the message can share the message with the next generation of proteins. Cool. So it's like a, a game of telephone. Pedal almost. exchanging. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yes. So Professor Margaret Stratton, UMass describes your work <laughs> this way. The Stratton Lab is focused on understanding the molecular components that allow you to form, maintain, and recall a memory, which I now understand way better now that you and uh, Kirsten Nordstrom have been having this conversation. What I would like to know is whether this is an explanation for why people who suffer from dementia or memory loss or Alzheimer's can still recall, particularly for non-Alzheimer's type dementia, still have very vivid memories of things that happened long ago, but don't recall things that happened very recently. Is this the explanation? So I think it's part of it for sure. And, you know, as I mentioned, there's still lots that we don't understand. But I think some of these core memories, you know, that you make as a as a child, for example, are strengthened over long periods of time. And so when you start to have dementia or, you know, cell death at the brain level, um, those are likely not the first synapses to break, the first memories to break. And so potentially that's why short term memory is more affected. Um, in these patients, but um, there's still a lot to learn here. Oh, that's fascinating. And the memories that are being made, they're just not being recorded because the synapses just are not working. So the mind, the brain can't lay down and, and, and store that memory. Is, is that the nub of it or am I misstating that? No, I think that's a great, uh, that's a great way to think about it. And that's how I think about it. But again, I think nobody has really proven this, mm -hmm. um, that that's the actual reason, or if it's, if it's that they're laid down, and then they're quickly removed, potentially, um, because they're not, you know, persistently being strengthened. Hmm. So everything's on the hypothesis level at this point, but there are lots of suggestions right. towards that. Right, yeah. right. Very interesting. And kind of interestingly, we have, um, there have been human mutations found in the protein that I'm telling you about, CAMK2, and these, um, there's 250 cases worldwide at the moment, so it's still quite rare. Um, but these, uh, these patients have a whole host of um, issues, including, of course, major learning and memory delays, but they also have other issues like motor function problems, um, GI issues, all kinds of things going on. So I think the question is quite complicated. Well, let's jump ahead in 30 seconds. If we could theoretically inject this protein into human beings, that possibly could, in fact, reverse uh, dementia? 
Is that the is that a long term hypothetically at least potential for your research? I think that's it's possible. It's probably more likely that we would try to find, say, a small molecule that activated a, a certain subset of protein, for example. But yeah, I think you know being able to stimulate specifically um, would would potentially help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing a bunch more about this tomorrow. Um, so we'll be hearing a, a longer talk from Professor Stratton tomorrow night. That's at Abandoned Building Brewery in East Hampton. Um, all ages, free admission. We'd love to see you there. If you can't make it, um, you can go to our website, scitechcafe.org or facebook.com slash cafe, and you can follow our events there. We'll have another event in January. But do do go. because but do go. Because you'll hear these questions from the kids that are amazing. It's a family-friendly event. I've never learned so much about science so quickly. And you'll never forget it. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Form lasting memories with us tomorrow. <laughs> Professor Margaret Stratton. Perfect. Professor Kirsten Nordstrom. Thanks. Thank you both right. so very Thank much. Thank you, Bill and Buzz. Memories pass between the pages of my mind. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. Hamas war began. Over the past few months, there have been countless anti-Semitic protests and counter-protests on college campuses. Some students say they don't feel safe. I was leaving the library late at night and I had a Sar of David visibly out and somebody came up to me and he goes, f*** the Jews, f*** the Jews. Today at a congressional hearing, lawmakers will hear from the presidents of Harvard, the University of Pennsylvania, and MIT on how they've responded to the incidents. Stacey Lynn, CBS News, Washington. Palestinians who fled to southern Gaza when the war began are struggling to get out now as Israel moves deeper into Khan Yunus in a bid to wipe out Hamas operatives. Correspondent Charlie Daggett reports from Tel Aviv. There are warnings that are going out. Uh, They've been dropping uh, pamphlets from aircraft. They've been trying to use uh, alert people using cell phones um, and a QR code. But of course, there's hardly any electricity or Internet connection in those areas. A volcano eruption in Indonesia is now blamed for 23 deaths. Rescuers on Mount Merapi are still searching for climbers who were on their way up the 9,500-foot peak. 
when it erupted Sunday, shooting ash two miles into the sky. Ten people are still missing. This country's largest drugstore chain is planning to overhaul the way pharmacies are paid for medications. CVS will move away from complex formulas used to set prescription prices and shift to simpler modelers, models based on the amount it pays for drugs plus a small markup and fee. One expert tells the Wall Street Journal it's a step toward transparency. Another tough lesson in not using the same old username and password. 23andMe says hackers got into the genetic testing company's profiles with stale logons and swiped personal information. CNET's Ian Schur. Part of what appears to have exacerbated 23andMe's hack in particular is that the company made it so that you could share your genetic information with other users as part of a family connection feature. Prince Harry's lawyers are back at court in the UK arguing for the Duke of Sussex security detail to be reinstated. CBS's Vicki Barker from London. Prince Harry wasn't in the courtroom. As his lawyers argued, he should never have been stripped of police protection when he ceased to be a serving royal. They argue he remains under heightened threat whenever he sets foot on British soil. Dow down 129. This is CBS News. Make the hiring process work for you. With Indeed's end-to-end hiring solution, you can attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Start at Indeed.com slash credits. The holidays are the happiest time of the year. That is unless you or your loved ones are miserable because of colds, sinus infections, or allergies. This holiday season, give the gift of better breathing with Navage. Wash away your cold and congestion problems this holiday season. Add Navage to your gift list so you can breathe easier, sleep better, and feel healthier all year long. Ask for Navage at Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Target, or find us online at Navage.com. Navage, N-A-V-A-G-E. Clean nose, healthy life. Oil investments involve a high degree of risk and actual results may vary. Accredited investors, are you tired of the volatility of the stock market? Diversify now while oil continues to go up in price with expert predictions to be at $125 a barrel soon. Freedom Crude allows you to take advantage of the enormous profits that both companies and producers of domestic oil have been experiencing. Hurry before December 31st. Call Freedom Crude, 800-549-1985, 800-549-1985. Now a check of the sports page. The four Heisman Trophy finalists are all dynamic offensive threats. Daniels now starts to run. LSU quarterback Jaden Daniels leads the country with more than 400 yards in total offense per game. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A spending bill that includes money for temporary shelter spaces for migrant homeless families has cleared the Massachusetts legislature after more than 100 Democratic lawmakers arrived at the statehouse to overcome efforts by House Republicans to block the bill. The $2.8 billion spending bill passed yesterday sets aside $250 million to provide shelter for vulnerable families, including $50 million for an overflow site for homeless families stuck on a state wait list. The city of Northampton paid $75,000 to an Amherst man to settle an excessive force case instead of going to trial. This according to the shoestring who reported that Jenison Retzlaff was beaten and pepper sprayed by officers arriving on the scene after a neighbor had called for a wellness check on him. The incident happened in 2019 and the settlement was reached in September. Meanwhile, the trial of Eric Matlock, who was beaten, pepper sprayed and arrested by Northampton police officers on the steps of City Hall in 2017, will proceed to trial. Gateway City Arts, the music venue and restaurant in a redeveloped industrial building in Holyoke, is now for sale. 
After closing during the pandemic and reopening, the owners, Vitek Kruta and Lori Devine, have decided to pass their passion project on to new owners. The asking price is $4.5 million for the 28,000-square-foot venue. They stress that they are not closing and have events scheduled through the end of the year and hope the new owners will continue to use the space as an arts venue. A bit of sun and clouds this morning, and that's going to be the trend all week, but cooler temperatures are on the horizon. High temperatures today in the high 30s and low 40s. As we head into the overnight, those temperatures dip down into the 20s, mainly the mid to high 20s for our low temperatures, and conditions are going to stay similar in the overnight, some partial cloud cover. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And I am thrilled. We have a, 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 a couple of people here in the studio that are just going to brighten our day <laughs> with uh, stories and with an extraordinary book that has been written by one of them. That book is Mary Climbs In, The Journey of Bruce Springsteen's Women Fans by Lorraine Mangione and Donna Luff. Lorraine is here in the studio along with Sarah Weinberger, another nutty Springsteen (laughs) fan of many years. The two of you met in graduate school back in 1981 in Cleveland. Where else? I just have to tell you before we turn our attention to you, Lorraine, and talk more about the book that I just had my first experience in Cleveland at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on our way to visit our grandson in college. And there was Springsteen, that young Springsteen, and original saxophones and axes, and the room was filled with that uh, that, that wonderful course, uh, but meaningful voice. So Lorraine uh, Mangione, you are a professor of psychology why the heck would you write a book about women fans of Bruce Springsteen? Oh, boy, that's a good question and a big question. But first, I want to say, just you mentioning Cleveland and mentioning saxophone, it brings me to Clarence Clemens, who we love and so many of the women in our book love. And so just thank you for having that reminder about Clarence, um, who's who's no longer with us, but is still always in our heart. All right. Well, um, you, you two young ladies are... Um, Still crooning fans of Bruce Springsteen? Yes, it's been years and years. Mine started, the the image of climbing in um, comes from one of his songs, and it's when we use it as, when did people become Springsteen fans? I climbed in, especially in 1978 with the Darkness on the Edge of Town album. And I don't know, Sarah, exactly when you climbed in. I climbed in in 1974 at the gymnasium at John Carroll University, where we sat on the floor and heard him for the first time. Wow, I can't beat that. That's incredible. Um, So back to my question, why the book? Yeah, why the book? It's probably unbelievable, but there is a whole thing of Springsteen scholarship. And um, I have to say, Steve Farrer, when he wrote about our book for the Daily Hampshire Gazette, had a really funny little comment about who would believe their Springsteen scholarship. But there is, and there's been symposia uh, down in, of course, New Jersey, So there are a bunch of us who actually think about Springsteen from a more academic perspective. There's a whole area of fan studies, but I would say psychologists don't. And um, so I'm one of the few that does and writes about him and would go to those conferences. Um, So several years ago, Donna Luff and I were invited to watch a movie on Springsteen fans. And I should should point out your co-author, Donna Luff. 
yeah. of Mary Climbs In. She is a sociologist. Yes, yeah. She's a sociologist. Yes, yes. And um, so we were asked to write a review of this uh, movie about Springsteen fans, and we weren't that crazy about it. It was good, but we felt like, in general, women fans are stereotyped. Isn't that shocking? (laughs) Women are often stereotyped all sorts of ways. Um, I think of my sister and her friend Kathy screaming their heads off for the Beatles uh, several years before Springsteen. And, but that's the image. It's that you're in love with them, um, but there's no depth. And, and it's very stereotyped. And that's why we wanted to, we thought, let's do a survey. And when we decided to do the survey on, if you know what backstreets.com is, that was a, a well-known Springsteen site, um, not by him, but by fans. Um, we thought if we get 50 or 100 responses to our survey, because we were going to really do research. We, weren't, we, just, we didn't just want our opinions, even though we have opinions, and I have friends who have opinions. But um, we finally closed it down after a week because we had over 1,000 responses. And then a few years later, we did another survey and got like several hundred responses. So to get all that I feel like there were women waiting to tell their stories, and that's what we were trying to do. Get away from the stereotypes, look at what the fandom is really about. Because I knew for me and my friends, it wasn't just about, yay, although it's part of it. The yay is part of it. The dancing is part of it. The, the waving your arms is part of it. But there's more to it than that, and that's why we did it. Well, Sarah Weinberger, let me get it from the horse's mouth right now instead of stereotype. How about you, Sarah? What has maintained your fandom... In your your interest in Bruce Springsteen and his music over all these decades, and how do you feel about being part of a sociological or psychological experiment? It's looking into your deep seated love for uh, Bruce Springsteen. I actually was not interviewed for the book. <laughs> well, you are now. But, but I think you know. I I was thinking as you asked the question. Had it not been for my friendship with Lorraine, who our friendship has continued, we're very, very close friends. We don't live that far from each other. Um, I don't know if my fandom would have gone in that direction, but Lorraine has been to more Springsteen concerts than anybody I know by a long shot. And so anytime Bruce was in town, she'd say, you want to go? And I accompanied her to, um, let's see, Hartford, and to Saratoga, and to we, we drove one day to a concert in New Jersey, back and forth, um, got home at 3.30 in the morning, and that was an acoustic concert. It was wonderful. And we went together to see Bruce on Broadway. But why? What um, is it about Bruce Springsteen and his music? It's a number of things. For me, it takes me back to a long, long time ago um, when he was the guy I fell in love with in the 70s. He got me through a bad, long relationship in college. Um, He was the person that I would put my headphones of my Walkman on on my ear and get on my bike and ride up this big hill near where a friend lived while I was listening to Rosalita. He got me up many hills, literally and figuratively. Wow. Bill, uh, she, she used to put him on her Victrola and listen. <laughs> I'd like to know, since uh, you both are referring to Bruce Springsteen as Bruce, I, do you know him at all? Have you ever met him? 
I've never met him. I've never met him. Um, and I'm even jealous because my uh, co-author, there's a picture of her in there where she got to like buy his autobiography and get a picture taken with him. But no, I've never uh, met him. Uh, we supposedly signed a book to a friend of a friend of ours who claimed he will get it to Bruce. But um, no, I've never, um, no, that's one of those sad things in my life. The closest <laughs> we got was when we went to see Bruce on Broadway. We got there an hour early and so yeah. we could see she was on one side of the street and I was on the other side of the street. And um, he pulled up in his SUV and got out and I just was snapping pictures. And I was probably as close to him as you are to me, Buzz. Yeah, so, uh, do we so know close, Lorraine whether so close and yet <laughs> so yes, far? Yeah. <laughs> do we know whether the book Mary Climbs in the Journey of Bruce Springsteen Women Fans has it gotten to Bruce Springsteen? Can you get it to him through his publicist? We, uh, our publishing company, I think they've made some offers uh, or some attempts, and uh, like I say, this person that we know claims and. That's as far as I know. That's as far as I know. Um, yeah. So, but, and, and especially, you know, he's been ill lately. I don't know if you've followed that. He ended up canceling a bunch of concerts, which really upset lots and lots of fans. And um, he's supposedly coming back and he's added more concerts. Um, in fact, of the three I was supposed to go to this year, two got canceled. Um, I did see him in Rome at Circus Maximus, which was incredible. Um but I kept thinking, while you are recuperating, read the book. That's mine. You're a professor. Oh, uh, yes. Annie Act New England. Yeah. Do your students think it's goofy that they have a professor of a certain age who is still wild about Bruce Springsteen? They have a lot of different responses. One woman came up to me. She was a first-year student, and she said, don't tell anybody this. <laughs> But I am a Bruce Springsteen fan. <laughs> she said, but I'm not coming out to my class. <laughs> but then I said to her, if you want, I am going to be presenting at American Psychological Association on this in the summer. Do you want to present with me? I said, that will out you. And she said, yes, I want to present with you. <laughs> so, um, so some of them really love it. And some of them, what they do is relate it to their fandom. And I think what they appreciate is the fact that I think fandom is important. I talk about the Taylor Swift thing that's going on right now. Um, people talk about, they name groups that I've never heard of. I will totally admit that. Uh, so a lot of them can relate on, on other levels. I actually met a 12-year-old the other day who is a major... Grateful Dead fan. So fandom is, you don't know who people are going to connect up with and what it's going to mean, but I think it's meaningful. And I, I wish psychologists would talk about it more. I wish more of us would use it in clinic, in therapy. And, and I sometimes in the groups I do, I bring music in, but, but so some of them love it and some of them make fun of me and I don't mind if they make fun of me. I'm a good target. Okay. So as a professor, share this. Is fandom healthy? That is a really good question. I keep wondering, and Sarah, I'd love to hear you on this too. What is the difference between fandom and cults? And where does it get dangerous? And Sarah, would you like to lie down on the couch? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Do you have a couch? <laughs> um, when does it get, when does the fanaticism, 
you know, fan comes from the word fanatics. Um, when does it become fanaticism? When does it become cult? When do you drink the Kool-Aid, so to speak? And um, well, I would... I, I love Bill's question, but I want to make it... A, maybe I can sort of amplify it a little bit. And let me start with you, Sarah Weinberger, before we go back to co-author yeah. Lorraine Mangione. Sarah, if you're on right now, we're on Talk to Talk. Bruce Springsteen is one of those few artists who not only talks the talk in his music, he walks the walk. He is truly uh, what uh, honest to his principles and amplifies them in ways other than just his music. He supports things that he believes in and people that he believes in. If he wasn't that way, would you be as big a fan? Probably not as an adult or even not even... When I was younger, because I loved that he, I grew up in a working class family and he spoke, he was the voice of working class Americans. And, um, you know, born in the USA, it, it was like a song that made me feel okay because he told the real story about being born in the USA, which is not always the story that we get fed. And, you know, that kind of relates to what, what, uh, Bill asked Lorraine, I think that the messages that you get from your fa- from the people that we idolize has a lot to do with whether or not we should be idolizing them. Mm. And, um, and I feel like Bruce has always given a really positive message that is consistent with my beliefs, my values, my politics. How about you, Lorraine? Does your fandom... Spring fr- Springsteen from his politics? Yeah. So um, food. Let's just talk about food. Um, and uh, yes, I'm Italian. I'm obsessed with food, too. Uh, you brought up my last name. Um, we won't talk about what it means. Um, but he is the only person I knew way back, way back, who at the end of every show, would you would, you would be giving money to a local food bank or whatever. That was that was there right from the beginning. And right now at Antioch, uh, Antioch University where I teach, we are working on something where we're gonna use some Springsteen songs to raise awareness about some of the things you just said, social justice, working class, social justice, working class, um, really try to raise awareness about the um, the issues that, that Sarah just uh, really said so so eloquently um so yes for me it's he elevated a whole part of humanity in this country that we just don't usually hear about and then in some of his later work he um really brought in different groups and and the way he talks about women when we come back i have a question for you okay which is why is it that Springsteen and a few others are so different and so many times in our culture, in our society, in our communities, if someone's famous or they do something really well like smash a football player down, we can forgive all sorts of sins. What makes us so blind? I'd like to follow up with that, and we will right after this. Sisters out. Every 
listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586 1000. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Jackalope? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Enjoy fine dining in downtown Springfield. Black Angus Filet Mignon, Crab Cake Stuffed Jumbo Shrimp, Bolognese, Bear Island Salmon, and vegans are welcome too. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we're continuing our conversation with Lorraine Mangione, who's a co-author along with Donna Luff of Mary Climbs In, The Journey of Bruce Springsteen Women Fans. And one such fan is here with us, a longtime friend and colleague and co-fan, Sarah Weinberger. Bill, you had a question before we broke. I did. I understand why you can love Bruce Springsteen. It's consistent. His music is fantastic, and his person and his politics are admirable. But why is it that he is, in some ways anyway, an exception, not the rule? Because all sorts of famous and accomplished in sports or music or arts people do all sorts of horrible thing and, all things, and people still are big fans. They forgive everything or overlook it. Why is that? So I would say there have been a couple of things that people have gotten mad at Bruce about. Um, One was ticket availability this year. Um, Another was there some issues about um, his relationships, um, divorce, marriage. um, And I I think that if somebody means so much to you, and in our world, maybe we don't have a lot of other places where we get those important meanings that um, it's still easy to, to, get, to get beyond. But and we, ex- I'm go- we expect someone who's famous to be heroic somehow? Why? Yeah. Why? Well, 
because we we need that. We need that. And we, we one of the things we talk about in the book is Springsteen as mentor, teacher, spiritual guide, therapist. These are deep friend and family member. Um, everybody wants to have them over for dinner. These are deep things that people need in our lives, and they get that. And unfortunately, sometimes they get them. This goes back to that question of cult. Sometimes they get them in a way that's not very healthy. I think for most of these fans, and certainly I think for us, it's pretty healthy and that, that's um, because of who we, we love um, and idealize in a way. I also note that at least for, for Springsteen, people can criticize him and not leave him. And that feels more real in some ways. Um, so I'm probably not answering your question because I don't know why with some people they can do really horrible things. I don't, I don't know why, except that that connection is deep. The connection in here is deep. The connection to some of those other people is deep, maybe because we don't have religion like we used to or family like we used to. Maybe it's become even more um, more and, important. And I think Springsteen is different. I want him over for dinner. No yes, question about yes. it. But, but Trump famously said and revolted all of us, when you're a celebrity, you could grab a woman yes. in an yes. appropriate way. And I think Bill's question goes to that. Why do people like uh, celebrity begets this undying fandom? I'm going to say emptiness. People are empty. There's a lot of emptiness out there and people fill it up with whatever. Um, there's fancy psychology words I can use like interjection, but emptiness and people look for something to fill it up and sometimes they fill it up and it looks like you're about to say something. Well, I would just say though that I'm not sure every fan has undying fandom. I think there, I remember being Woody Allen's biggest fan. And then when all that stuff happened, um, I gave him up. I stopped seeing Woody Allen movies and he just didn't mean anything to me. The stuff that that someone like Bruce has done, and I, I have been annoyed with him about ticket prices. I talked to Lorraine about it. Um, but it's it's not so criminal that I would say I wouldn't be his fan anymore. But I think people do give give him up, to give up people, give okay, up, so up stars. Okay, so since 1974, you've gone to a gazillion Bruce Springsteen <laughs> concerts. What is it about his concerts that keeps you, Sarah Weinberger, returning? So I remember this at my first concert, and I remember it at every concert since. Bruce loves to perform. I remember, I should keep saying I remember, but a number of years ago, I went to see Bob Dylan right here at Look Park, and I was so bored because he had no interaction with the audience. And I'm sorry if I've alienated any Dylan fans. No, that's okay. But, the times there are changing. <laughs> <laughs> but when you go to a concert with Bruce, the early concerts, he would perform for four hours. And I would be clapping and dancing and sometimes standing on my seat. And I wouldn't know what else to do with myself. I'd be so energized. He still makes me feel energized. And you see people of every age group. Our kids are both Springsteen fans. And it's just, it's such a powerful experience because he has this magnetism. You know he likes you. He likes fans. And it's genuine. And performing is what he's about. It's not just recording music. It's, 
It's performing is a gift that he gives all of us. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Performing is a gift that he gives all of us. So, Lorraine Mangione, tell us, where can we get the, what is the book and where can we get it? Uh, Mary Climbs In, The Journeys of Bruce Springsteen's Women Fans and Broadside Books has been wonderful uh, and they carry the book um, and that would be a great place to get it. And I just want to reiterate that I think we both raised our kids right because they are Bruce Springsteen fans. <laughs> and my daughter has seen him more on this tour than I have. So There is a Springsteen gene. We yes. yes. Is, is there a next concert that you have tickets for? Uh, ones that were canceled. So Albany and Syracuse um, in the spring. And unfortunately, they're in the same week, which I would never do. But I will go to both of them. And Sarah's going to Albany. No, Syracuse. You'll, Syracuse. Fi you'll figure it out between yeah. now and then. Yeah. <laughs> I got it. Yeah. Well, that's great. And we're all born in the USA. So <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today, Lorraine Mangione and Donna Love. I just love your passion about Springsteen and especially about his politics and worldview. We will be right back. We'll be talking to Senator Paul Mark right after this. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A spending bill that includes money for temporary shelter spaces for migrant homeless families has cleared the Massachusetts legislature after more than 100 Democratic lawmakers arrived at the statehouse to overcome efforts by House Republicans to block the bill. The $2.8 billion spending bill passed yesterday sets aside $250 million to provide shelter for vulnerable families, including $50 million for an overflow site for homeless families stuck on a state wait list. The city of Northampton paid $75,000 to an Amherst man to settle an excessive force case instead of going to trial. This according to the shoestring, who reported that Jenison Retzlaff was beaten and pepper sprayed by officers arriving on the scene after a neighbor had called for a wellness check on him. The incident happened in 2019, and the settlement was reached in September. Meanwhile, the trial of Eric Matlock, who was beaten, pepper sprayed, and arrested by Northampton police officers on the steps of City Hall in 2017, will proceed to trial. Gateway City Arts, the music venue and restaurant in a redeveloped industrial building in Holyoke, is now for sale. After closing during the pandemic and reopening, the owners, Vitek Kruta and Lori Devine, have decided to pass their passion project on to new owners. The asking price is $4.5 million for the 28,000-square-foot venue. They stress that they are not closing and have events scheduled through the end of the year and hope the new owners will continue to use the space as an arts venue. A bit of sun and clouds this morning, and that's going to be the trend all week, but cooler temperatures are on the horizon. High temperatures today in the high 30s and low 40s. As we head into the overnight, those temperatures dip down into the 20s, mainly the mid to high 20s for our low temperatures, and conditions are going to stay similar in the overnight, some partial cloud cover. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. 
You've been miserable with joint pain for so long. You want and deserve relief, but you just keep putting off that call to QC Kinetics. Okay, now's the time. Listen up. QC Kinetics is rolling out something huge for the first time ever. It's a voucher for $500 off your first joint pain treatment. That's right, $500 off. Whether it's your knees, hips, shoulder, or back, the QC Kinetics voucher applies to any area. But this is a limited time offer, so no more putting off that call. QC Kinetics is the largest regenerative clinic in the country with tens of thousands of satisfied patients who are able to get lasting relief with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. So reach out to the team at QC Kinetics today and ask them, how can I get a $500 off voucher? They'll walk you through the steps and get you started on your way to relief. Don't wait. This is a limited time offer. Call for your free consultation today. QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Limited time only. Not valid with any other offer. Veterinarians say a respiratory illness is making its way through dogs across the country and researchers remain in the dark about the specifics of the disease. The researchers say the symptoms are similar to both kennel cough and canine influenza. Could a breakthrough cancer treatment also cause some new cases of the disease? The FDA is investigating 19 new cases of cancer occurring in patients who received CAR-T therapies, which is a type of immunotherapy. Scientists stress that they have yet to prove a link and that the treatment has saved many lives. The FBI has issued a warning to seniors that there has been a recent surge in the so-called grandparent scam. A scammer pretends to be a grandchild in trouble and in need of money. The FBI says recent developments in AI voice cloning make it an even more dangerous scam. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. This is our monthly conversation, which I always so look forward to. Uh, we call it On the Mark with Senator Paul Mark, who uh, represents those 57 communities, that enormous geographic slice of Massachusetts. And um, uh, if I were Bill Newman, I would have him recite alphabetically in reverse all the communities that he represents. But I'm not going to do that field sobriety test on him right now <laughs> because we have so much to talk about. We have all been holding our breath to see if a supplemental budget is going to be passed by our legislature and um i think we have good news uh hello senator mark and could you please tell us first of all what is a supplemental budget and then give us the news i was going to say worthington windsor (laughs) (laughs) okay you're sober (laughs) um okay so yeah the what we did was the closeout budget. So the, the closeout budget is closing the books on fiscal year 2023. And for people listening at home, fiscal year 2023 ended on July 1st. Now in Massachusetts and in every state, the budget has to be balanced. And we're not like Washington where we just we just make up money and we just do whatever we want. We, we, we have to be in balance. And so if there is excess money, you either send it back, uh, as what happened with that 62F law a couple of years ago, or you um, you have to spend it, or you have to save it. You have to do something with it. And so, as we closed out fiscal year 2023, um, the first stab we took at it was sometime in the fall, uh, and the House and Senate passed different versions. Then we took another stab of it at it um, 
the House, I want to say, passed it the Thursday before formal sessions end, so around November 8th, and then the Senate passed its version on November 14th, and then ideally everything was supposed to be reconciled and sent to the governor by midnight on on November 15th. And one of the main areas of, dis- oops, of dispute between the House and the Senate was on the shelter funding for the migrant families coming into Massachusetts. And just I think people know this, but as a background, we are the only state in the country that as a right – if you're a family or a child, you have a right to shelter. We have to find you a place to stay if you present uh, to whatever agency you, you are guaranteed shelter. And I never knew the number, but there's a capacity limit, and apparently the number is around 7,500 beds or, or rooms, as it, as it were. And um, we hit that. We just hit that number uh, for the first time that I'm aware of in the last couple of weeks. And so the governor is part of closing out the books and the final number, I think, was $3.1 billion. So the closeout fiscal year, 2023, which is now closed, um, we had to spend $3.1 billion. And she requested $250 million of that to go to the shelter system. The dispute was how that should work. Should there be overflow shelters? Should there be this number of, of, of safeguards? What, what, what should the governor be required to do? in spending that money and then kind of below the surface is so how much more are we are we talking about and so like there's a there's a very serious legitimate policy debate that as refugees as people are, are leaving these other countries seeking asylum or ending up here in the united states and then ending up in massachusetts as as we're looking to make sure that no children is sleeping on no child is sleeping on the street no family is sleeping on the street and also dealing with our own uh, population that doesn't have a, a, a house, um, you know, how are we balancing that? And how are we balancing that leadership role as the only state that does this? And um, but also questioning, what do we do when the price tag gets to 20 billion? You, you know what I mean? Like mm. there's, a, there, there's a place where we have to be in balance. And so at some point, especially as revenue seems to be slowing, um, there's going to need to be decisions made. And so we want to get out ahead of that. And then, what became frustrating, and I would say as a legislator, no one was more frustrated about this than me, was that I want to say 90 union contracts that had been negotiated by the executive branch and were subject to funding, the raises were subject to funding by the legislature, were stuck along with a lot of other items in, in the process of waiting for this to get done. And so there was, a, and I know in your in your uh, listener area, a lot of public employees working at UMass and, 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 and that kind of thing um, were rightly frustrated. And it gets very tough because when I get an email, I'm on your side and all I can say is thank you and pass along the frustration up, up the ladder. Um, so, yeah, it was it was it was a, it was a tense couple of weeks. And I, I, I do want to point out for listeners who may have heard we had. Uh, two such public employees, two community college uh, professors, Trevor Kearns from GCC and a gentleman from Middlesex Community College on the show talking about how frustrating it was that they had, even though it was a small raise, basically a cost of living raise, that those adjustments were not funded by the legislature and the legislature uh, took a took a recess and 
the frustration you just expressed was really felt by them. About a week and a half ago, I think 14 community college presidents announced that they would fund it out of their own budget so that yep. these, these uh, uh, adjustments, these cost of living adjustments could be um, given to the employees that so deserve them in anticipation of exactly what you folks did yesterday. So you passed this $31 billion closeout budget, as you said, so that uh, now all of those uh, contracted raises will take effect immediately. Is that right? Yeah, she, she, the, the governor signed it, so it is now law. So yeah, that, that, that'll start, I believe, in the next paycheck, they'll start getting the raise and, and, and they're going to get a retro payment. So I mean, this is the good news is the, the money that everyone's been waiting for. Um, hopefully it comes in time for the holiday season or at least to pay off the, uh, the credit cards that I know I'm using and everyone else is using um, in, in, in a couple of weeks. Um, hopefully people are going to get a nice little bonus. And again, it's, it's frustrating. What, what becomes frustrating on, on my end is uh, there's a general misunderstanding of what the legislative process is, which I understand. I, I didn't know the whole structure myself in, until I ended up in there. But there's like this fantasy that we, we go away on vacation for seven weeks, and that, that isn't what happens whatsoever. Um, we still meet every 72 hours. It's just the process by which we meet changes. And so we had um, the first time I've ever seen, and the Speaker of the House, Mariano, and he's been in for over 30 years, he had also never seen a moment where in this this period of informal session, the, the sessions where you don't have roll call votes, um, that a quorum was needed uh, to in, in order to in order to move forward with the business of the house because we're allowed to continue to move forward. It, it's just that if you don't have a quorum present, then the session can be ended. And when that happens, all business uh, doesn't count for the day. So we we, we got the quorum. Um, I, I participated. Uh, I know all the house members locally participated, and we got it done. It's just it's it's just again. People were rightfully frustrated, and when I experienced that frustration, I directed it up. Our leadership heard a lot of that frustration, and um, and it got done in, in, in the end. Um, well, Senator Paul Mark, in Chris Lasinski's piece in the uh, his report uh, on today's uh, Daily Hampshire Gazette, he his subheading after Healy signs three point one billion dollar closeout budget, he writes. Republicans relent after holding up the package over the shelter system. So the shelter system, which you just described, and also described the fact that here in the Commonwealth, we, uh, we have so much to be proud of. I do have so much to be proud of because our Commonwealth has made shelter a, a matter of guarantee for families and children who need it. Um, what were Republicans, uh, what made them hold up this, this question? It's so bizarre because the Republicans had a moment and, you know, I'm not a Republican and boy, am I not going to give them advice, <laughs> but they had this moment where on, on November 16th to just go out and say, hey, this is a Democratic controlled legislature and a Democratic governor and they couldn't get the job done. What a disgrace. And then at some point when the differences in opinion on how the shelter money and all the other money should be spent were resolved, instead of throwing up their hands and saying, this should have been done a week and a half ago, and we're, we're, we're sick that it took this long, but boy, you put us in a position we have no chance but to vote yes. Instead, they doubled down and started making this bizarre parliamentary procedure where they wouldn't let 
a vote happen to move this to the governor and let it be signed into law. So this was delayed now an extra unnecessary week because Republicans decided to grandstand about immigration shelter. So it, it, it's just bizarre. They had a moment to have a, a great victory and I think turned it into, yeah, we'd like to take the anger from you, Democrats. <laughs> so it's, it's just it's just odd. But, yeah, they started this mo- this this process of doubting quorums. And so um, while they had all already everyone in the legislature had already been on record record voting for or against the budget um, back in, in, in mid-November, um, there was this 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 fantasy that we needed to take another on the record vote as opposed to just getting this money to the shelters, getting this money to the hardworking people uh, waiting for their raises. Senator Mark, this is Bill. What, what I don't quite understand is how the Democratic leadership managed to have such bad optics on this. And the substantive question I have to go along with that is, why not just stay in formal session until the budget was passed and signed by the governor? Why allow the narrative to, to, to uh, be, be furthered that, well, see, they just went home? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, no, that's a good point. I, I, to answer the first part, I don't understand optically and politically why this was allowed to fester, because it put a lot of us in a really bad position where me as a, as a career-long union member is, is stuck telling people, I'm sorry, I'm trying, but I'm sorry, um, as opposed to saying what I wanted to say, we got it done. Um, so that, I think, is going to be a problem, is going to be a serious discussion that we're going to have uh, within, within the Senate and, and, and I assume in the, within the House. Um, as to the second part, well, when we were sitting there on the 15th, no one for a second that I know of thought this wasn't going to get done. And so we're there in session, and um, with unanimous consent, you can stay after midnight. We're there after midnight, and around 12.45 a.m., the message comes out from the rostrum, uh, there will be no further roll calls tonight. Uh, we're going to adjourn. So I don't know. So I know everyone I talked to, and, I, and, and on a two-and-a-half-hour ride home from uh, 1 to 3.30 in the morning, um, people were calling me and just universally surprised, disgusted, upset. But I, I, I can only imagine that the, the leadership of, of both chambers and of both chambers' um, ways and means representation assumed that, as has been previous practice, we had a roll call vote already, so no one's going to try to block this in the informal session. That, that, that okay, we'll, we'll get this done tomorrow, we'll get it done Saturday. Um, they didn't, I know they didn't stop talking, they didn't stop trying to work. It just leaves the rest of us out there um, in kind of this, this, this um, very un, unpleasant situation. So my, my long answer is, I don't know. I guess they misjudged. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, the, uh, the governor has signed his $3.1 billion closeout budget, which does provide for those who need and does provide our public employees. We all rely on so much uh, a cost of living adjustment that they've been promised far too long. When we come back, Senator, I would like to ask you about the hearings that you've been involved in uh, with respect to telecommunications, utilities, and energy. We'll be right back with On the Mark with Senator Paul Mark right after this. I ain't got no home, I'm just a roaming round. Just a wandering worker, I go from town to town. 
the police make it hard wherever I may go. And More I Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Sweeten up your holiday parties with gingerbread cookies, chocolate hazelnut seashells, vanilla Hanukkah cookies, and mini Dresden Stolen. It's all at the co-op. Sweet treats, the holiday roast, fresh seafood, beer and wine, and lots and lots and lots of local farm fruits and vegetables. Do a little gift shopping too. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Seeing a student read something to a class, a student that has completely shut down, to see that same student a year later standing in front of a whole room full of kids and reading something is like the best. We get to see the whole process. Little steps turn into huge victories. I mean, we really spend a lot of time making sure that every kid finds success. It's not that the child is looking successful, but is actually being successful. Whole Children is an organization that offers extracurricular and enrichment activities for children of all abilities. I mean, we have kids with autism, kids with Down syndrome, kids with no diagnosis. We've seen students succeed in a classroom setting who haven't been in a classroom with peers for years. But also kids who are typical benefit because they leave the class with like a larger view of abilities that these, these kids who are, we, who I maybe didn't notice as much before, have so much to offer. Sometimes I, I think say. the peers benefit even, even more. Even more, yeah. Any child yeah. would benefit from going to a class like, like Whole Children. Wholechildren.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Senator Paul Mark, who represents so many of us here in Western Massachusetts and in this uh, region. Um, Senator, there was a hearing in Pittsfield dealing with telecommunications, utilities, and energy. Um, I, before we go to that hearing, uh, before we uh, during the break, I was telling you that um, there was an astronomical increase in my electrical bill this summer and that of everybody in this region. So what oh, you must hear a lot about that and you must be uh, called upon to explain it to so many constituents. How do you explain it? Yeah, we, we, we get a lot of this traffic in, in, uh, in the Berkshire specifically as it is an older population. And so a lot of people that when prices go up, they don't necessarily have uh, more money to tap into. They have what they have. And so um, myself, my colleague, uh, Representative John Barrett, my colleague, Representative Spinny Pignatelli, were the lead on letters to the DPU um, at the beginning of this Department year. of Public Utilities. Yeah, I'm sorry. The, yeah, the Department of Public Utilities, which oversees some of the pricing. Um, and it was still the Baker administration appointees asking them, what are you doing to help people that are struggling, trying to make uh, these payments and, and, and trying to deal with these rate increases? And, uh, and, and with gas as well, not just with electricity. Uh, you fast forward to now, there's a new administration, there's a new team in place. And so we wanted to have this hearing 
and I wanted to do it in Western Massachusetts and, and, and in my district, of course. And it was a great opportunity to have the Secretary of Energy and Environmental Affairs, the uh, Commissioner of Department of Energy Resources, and the Chair of the D- Department of Public Utilities come out, explain what, what, what they're up to, how they're trying to get us into a better position, which it looks like we are in a better position. There's going to be lower rates than there were last year, you know, all else staying equal. And uh, and just have the public have the ability to see this. And, and a, a personal note of pride, and I don't use the word pride often, is this was the first meeting of the Joint Committee on Telecommunications, Utilities, and Energy for the entire session that featured representatives and senators together, uh, which I really, really, really liked. <laughs> Why is that? Why do you think that's important? Well, I think it's important because without harmony, without some kind of collaboration between the two chambers, um, we're not going to get the energy bills that we need to get done done this year. And so to, to kind of help spearhead that reconciliation and, and that I hope is going to be lasting and, and, and that collaborative spirit, I think is important. I think sends the right message. And, and boy, at a moment when Congress is always dysfunctional, um, and we usually say Massachusetts isn't like that, and then we showed our own dysfunction for two weeks, uh, I think it's 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 important to show like any kind of patching and any kind of teamwork. And so, no, I think it was a really productive hearing, and I and I think people uh, that that observed and attended um, were impressed. Do you think it matters, Senator, that um, to to have a hearing in this case in Pittsfield to have it in your district uh, where people can actually attend and don't have to go to Boston? Yes, it, it definitely matters because. Traditionally, our prices have been higher in Western Massachusetts. That is changing because the companies have gotten bigger and the, the way they're allowed to, the way they're regulated because of these mergers has changed. And so now we get, we're on essentially the same footing as, as, as our, our, our counterparts in the rest of the state. Um, but so often you have these hearings, they happen in Boston. And yes, they're available online. They're available uh, through this format and that format. But it's still, it just feels distant. And in the Berkshires, even more than in the Valley, generally, if you're watching TV news, you're getting New York stations in, in, in Berkshire County. It, 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 is, it is not often that you're getting Boston news. And so there is a disconnect. There is a general feeling that people aren't listening. And so anytime I get the opportunity to connect my district, all of it, to Boston, I think it's extremely important. And so I was really glad that it was very well attended. It was very well covered. And um, it was also very well attended by administration and utility company uh, personnel, which is important. Senator, I understand that it makes a difference to your constituents that Boston uh, officials have come to Western Massachusetts and to your district on this uh, vital economic issue. And so, so personal for people, how much more they're spending on essentials. What I would like to know is whether or not it made an impression on your colleagues and from officials from uh, Boston uh, that so many people came out. Um, this the, yeah. It's the reverse of Buzz's question, which is, what, yeah. ab- what about those who came here as opposed to those who live here? Yeah, no, for, first of all, I think the fact that everyone said yes, because when, when we're sending out the invitations, there's, there's me worrying. They're going to send the assistant secretary to the assistant secretary and uh, the gas company is going to send, you know, the, the, the guy that changes the meter. And, um, no, they, they, they took it seriously. They, they, they took their responsibilities ser- seriously. Um, they took a grilling. The administration officials took a grilling for two hours 
and then the companies took a grilling for one hour. And no, I, I think I think that means a lot, not just to, to the constituency. I think it means a lot that they have to recognize that this state includes every corner of the state. And I made the joke when they first started testifying. I appreciated them coming out, and surprisingly, the road was just as far in this direction as <laughs> what we had east. And, and, I, and I, I think that says a lot that. Yeah, we're always expected to do this. You're expected to do this sometimes, too. And so I did appreciate everything that happened. Uh, and I appreciate the grilling, the grill of my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to ask you, Senator Mark, uh, seriously, in the minute that we have left or so, uh, are we going to get relief from these extraordinarily high uh, prices for energy? They said yes. They said the forecast is it's going to be a better winter and again, can that change if there's a you know an, up, an uptick in the war in, in, in Ukraine or, or if some other natural disaster happens somewhere? Of course, but but what they're predicting is stability and weather dependent, a bit of a decrease from last year. And then in some of the long term focus, we're on the right track to becoming energy secure and more energy independent. It's just we have to get there and we have to get through this time until we're able to say, well, the good news is we produce all our energy here in Massachusetts or, or, or up in uh, Canada through hydro. And finally, in the 30 seconds we have, what about telecommunications? Do you anything, see anything on the horizon that we should be hopeful about? Yeah, there's, there's talk right now about how um, poles, uh, how, how the plant that hangs on the poles, the wires, how that's going to be up upkept and, and, and upgraded and how the poles themselves are going to be up, upgraded. And that's important for towns like Ashfield, towns in, in, uh, in my district that are looking to get and stay wired uh, to the 21st century. Well, we are so grateful uh, for your visit and for everything you do to make this region uh, the region, the special region that it is. Thank you so much, Paul Mark. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today. As always, talk the talk and walk the walk. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5 and 1400. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Are you an educator? Want to be more confident teaching about environmental issues? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst offers hundreds of curriculum units, lesson plans, classroom activities, and professional development workshops for K-12 teachers. Come check us out. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit hitchcockcenter.org.